All right, we're on chapter 13 of Disciplines of a Godly Man book. The topic is perseverance. <clears throat> so, as we keep on saying, the topic of discipline doesn't seem to fit with perseverance. Um, it doesn't seem to automatically be uh, something that we conclude would be connected. But the problem is sins and flaws are a part of us. It's part of our, our sinful nature. And so we need to keep effort up uh, to continue to grow. And the solution, of course, is Christ and keeping moving toward him. So we'll start with uh, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, classic passage about perseverance. And the whole chapter basically uncovers truths from this one passage. So you could turn there if you'd like, Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Therefore, and I'll just remind you of the things prior to the therefore, all of chapter 11 we call the heroes of faith chapter. By faith so-and-so, by faith so-and-so. And so because they're exalted, because they're trusting in Christ, what do all these heroes of the faith mean for us collectively in a summarized way together? This is the drawing lesson, the concluding lesson. Uh, so chapter 12 is connected to chapter 11 with the therefore. So having covered that, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So in the chapter, our author, uh, Pastor Hughes, unpacks four of the verbs here. First is divest, or in the English Standard we read, lay aside. So what are we doing? Throwing off the flaws that we keep repeating. Do you ever find yourself in a Romans 7 situation where you say, the things I didn't want to say, I ended up saying. The things that I meant to say, I did not say. The things I wanted to do, I didn't do. And the things I did not want to do, I keep on doing a pattern and a habit. So that sort of repetition of habit, where to divest or throw off our own flaws, uh, we are called into the game, into the battle with, with Christ in this area of sanctification. Uh, so before God, we name the sins that are unique to ourselves. You, in order to lay aside weights, you have to understand them and name them and see them. So we name them, um, divest them, and putting off the, the sin that clings. He then describes it, the sin which clings so closely. Sins cling to us. And so it takes effort. That's the idea of the discipline is to find them and do whatever effort it takes. A perfect illustration is roof tar. If you've ever done roofing, as soon as you open a can of roof tar, it's everywhere. It's across the truck. It's on your gloves. It's inside your gloves. How did it get inside my gloves? I never took my gloves off. It's, inside, it's in your lunch pail. It's inside your peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Clinging sins is just like that tar. It's everywhere. How did sin get in this? So divesting is understanding it and setting aside things that may not be sins themselves, but they hinder you from the path of growth. Why do them then? 
Um, this show I could watch, but it's not necessarily sinful to watch it, but it keeps me from doing something I could do, should do. So that sort of thing, divesting. Second verb he unpacks in our chapter is the word run. Let us run with endurance. You see it in verse 1. So running the race that God has marked out for each of us, which is individual, to continue in that running, there's our perseverance concept, to uh, perpetually and continuously run with endurance. And then to run in such a way as to finish. Um, idea of never stopping running until the end of our lives. So divesting, running, the third uh, verb he focuses on is the word focus. And the verb in the English standard here in verse 2 is looking. Uh, Looking to Jesus, focused on Jesus, uh, giving our attention to. It's a very strong word. Uh, Gazing at intentionally and staying there on Jesus. Keeping your attention on Jesus is the idea. Not uh, distracted glances from Christ away to something else. And um, letting Christ's joy be ours. Look at verse 2, how it unpacks it. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. So, borrowing that from him, learning that from him, letting his joy be our joy. And even if the world offers disdain, we keep focused on Jesus, keep going in that direction. So that's three out of our four verbs, divest, run, focus. And the last one is consider. As you continue through your verse, um, before him who endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we are considering who Jesus is and where he is and what he has done. He spent his moment enduring the cross, despising the shame, and because he rose again, ascended, was coronated and glorified, he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So running as he ran, spending her life considering how Jesus lived and imitating him, keeping thinking about him, leaning on him for strength for it. So, I mean, the the chapter uncovers perseverance and asks us this difficult question. Why is it so hard to set aside certain hindrances, certain things we get entangled in? Or to put it another way, a little more dramatically, a little more end-of-life, big legacy question, will you be able to say, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I kept the faith, and if not, what would it take to be able to say that? All right, so chapter 13 on perseverance. We move to chapter 14 of Disciplines of a Godly Man book on the church. Now, discipline seems um, more tied to perseverance than it does to the church. How is the church a discipline? I hope you see quickly in a moment here how it is. Um, First, he spends quite a bit of time in his chapter unpacking the problem to diagnose the church, to explain how the weakness of the church in America is a problem, and to counteract that, we're going to need discipline. So the weak beliefs about, first of all, what the church itself is, our ecclesiology, if you put it that way. Many people have a weak understanding about what the church is. Some have abandoned the need for the church at all. And the bad reasoning that people often give is that A direct relationship with Christ minimizes my need for a connection with his church and his people. False logic, bad reasoning, and it leads to a bad result. People end up with conditional loyalty. So in this um, chapter, you'll enjoy this if you haven't had a chance to read it. He came up with a term 
for this. I don't think he coined the term, but he uses it. His term is church hitchhikers. And what he means is, tell you what, we'll make a deal. You buy the car. You maintain the car. You get gas. You drive the car. I'll ride with you unless we're in an accident or I get a better offer or I just don't feel like it. You serve on committees. You give. You keep the lights on. I'll attend unless I don't feel like it. And, by the way, I'm always looking for a better church. So a lack of commitment, a hitchhiker dynamic or a mindset is what he proposes is one of the problems in American uh, Christians. The, the mindset of uh, wrong ecclesiology, wrong idea of what a church is, what, what commitment is expected of us. So going farther on uh, church hitchhikers, he says, how can you tell if someone is a church hitchhiker? Listen to what they say. People say things like this. I go to that church, or I attend that church. That sounds right. That sounds good. How could you criticize that, right? What's missing? What's missing is that the church hitchhiker does not say, I belong to. They do not say, I am a member of that church. So the freedom error is paramount for them, that belonging to a church is good for others, but it's unnecessary bondage for me, unnecessary baggage for me. I don't want to go in that deep. He also describes Christian lone rangers. Again, I don't think he coined this term, but he tries to describe it. Churchless Christians, which when you look historically, I think he's right on this, is the first time in Christian history that you have churchless Christians. A lot of them. Um, Their theology is, I have God as my father, but I don't need the church as my mother. And the tragedy is that this sort of Christianity is incomplete and stunted, and it leads to many other problems. Um, So the allure is to our flesh, and our culture kind of nudges us in this uh, direction that we have no authority, right? I only answer to myself. We've taken the independency of American individualism and absolutized it, so I don't have to answer to my boss, I don't have to answer to the police officer. I don't have to answer to the school principal. I don't have to answer to the church authority. Uh, But the truth is that we do. In all previous examples, we do. So he further goes and talks about them as deserters of the church. He says this is the more proper name rather than uh, a fun way of saying a hitchhiker or a lone ranger. The actual correct way to describe it is deserting the church. That going all the way back to Augustine in the 4th century, he called into question whether those who are absent from Christ's membership are in Christ at all. It's a valid question. I don't know that you can definitively say there. It's being kind of harsh because I think it's a widespread cultural problem. However, it's, it's a valid question to bring up. John Calvin wrote that those who neglect the church want to be wiser than Christ. Because Christ said, you know, this is my, my church, my body, and I'll say more about that in a moment, but um, woe to their pride, wrote uh, John Calvin, one of, our, one of our reformers. So the thing he's bringing out in this chapter is that church is a discipline. Church is an activity. It's an effort. It's a constant effort. And to see oneself as an integral part of it, and therefore these actions are incumbent upon us, 
is part of the solution and the healing. Or, to put it negatively, to be a wanderer is a serious error. It's a theological misunderstanding or error. Um, The second Helvetic confession, which we don't often quote from, um, but it says this good quote, those who wish to live ought not to be separated from the true church of Christ. Chapter 27 of the second Helvetic confession. Coming back home to the Westminster Confession, chapter 25-2, the visible church out of which there's no ordinary possibility of salvation. So we believe very heavily in the church. And so the solution is God's truth about what the church is. Uh, We are actively considering after this study, there'll be another study, and then the, the, the next study after that in this class may very well be on the church for weeks and weeks. I think it's helpful for us to have a review and maybe to uh, examine our culture. So Hebrews 12, uh, now down to verse 22. You, who ha- you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. According to this passage, what do we come to when we come to God in worship? In other words, what spiritual treasures are found in the church in our worship? City of God, angels, fellow believers, God himself, the church triumphant, Jesus, and forgiveness by the sprinkled blood. So, one quick passage to... Um, correct our thinking about worship. And um, lastly, before we leave this topic, we are the church. That's what's so missing in the mindset of the, the Christians in America that we've just tried to criticize. We are the church. What does it mean for us? Well, let me read two verses. You listen for what it means for us that we are the church. Ephesians 1.22. He, speaking of God, the Father of glory, put all things under Christ's feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 1, to 23. We are Christ's body. So, is your body important to you? Did you just come here with your head and your body may or may not come along? We'll see maybe next week. It's intricately tied and connected, inextricably united to your head, and our head is Jesus. So, we should break out into song that we are his body. We, we, we will outlive the world because of that truth. We each individually need the church's mothering of us because the, the church is, we are, the body of Christ. The church needs us, we need the church. This is Christ's plan. So I think the takeaway is that the church must be the very center of our lives. It's that important. Just me and my timer. Okay. Um, how about the image of temple? Uh, Ephesians 2, uh, 19 to 22. That we are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are the temple. The place where God dwells and we come to meet him and worship him. It's not a place geographically, but it's a place where God's people gather and his word is opened, his name is invoked, 
and his name is exalted. His word is preached. So what does the image of the church as Christ's bride suggest? We've talked about body. We've talked about temple. How about bride? Ephesians 5, 25 to 33 is a passage you think it's talking about marriage, and it is, but that's subsidiary. What it's really talking about is Christ and his church. By the end of that passage, Paul writes, this mystery is profound. The mystery of marriage, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. Every marriage you see is really just an illustration of the one true marriage that exists in all the world, that is Christ and his people. So we are the bride of Christ is significant. Um, Lastly, uh, why, why are we tempted to do what Hebrews 10.25 says not to do. Hebrews 10.25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hebrews 10.25. So quite apart from COVID, quite apart from the live streaming aspect, just in general, why are we tempted to do what Hebrews 10.25 says not to do? Not neglecting to meet together. Why would we be tempted not to meet together? I think that's worthy of our pondering and uh, consideration. Maybe out of sorts with God, maybe out of sorts with others, uh, maybe wrong perspectives. I would say of the times when we don't feel like it, it's all the more important to come then. Uh, We are heading towards uh, false beliefs. Um, I'll leave you with this quote. On the most elementary level, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You don't have to go home to be married either. But in both cases, if you do not, you will have a very poor relationship. So how does regular worship, attendance, and participation in the ministry of the church strengthen our relationship with God and with our fellow believers? It does so with diligence and discipline. All right, that's that. Let's move back to our topic of perseverance, but now from the perspective of the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're in chapter 17. There is a handout for you now if you're in your green booklet. I really should have put page numbers here, but you can find it um, where it says WCF 17 across the top. Chapter 17. All right, the idea of perseverance is summarized uh, by my um, bold print sentence across the top. We stand on the promise that we will keep hanging on because... God is hanging on to us. So you compare our chapter, um, chapter 17, with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 36, again, across the top of your page. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? Three chapters which we studied previously. So what? What's in it for me? Right? That's this question. Answer. The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are... Assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. So we all want love, peace, joy, and grace. And do we want to keep going in it or have it kind of intermittent? Perseverance therein to the end is one of the blessings of God given to us in Christ through justification, adoption, and sanctification. So how can we... um, unpack this chapter. So first to remember where it is in in its setting. The chapters of the Westminster authors are 
are, they're put in order on purpose. So, so they're holding two things in tension here in this chapter. The work of God and the work of believers. We've been clear about that. We've touched on each topic before. But on this topic of how do I keep going to the end of my life? How do I know that on my last breath I will still be trusting in Christ Jesus and I won't fall away? How do I get there? Do I trust in God or do I work on it really hard for myself? Right? Holding those two things in tension. I hope I'm not annoying you with this. Um. Okay. Holding those two things in tension, the work of God and the work of believers. In individual chapters, as we work our way through, like chapters 10 through chapter 17, uh, they may a little more emphasize one or the other, the work of God or the work of believer. But you see all, across all the chapters, they're pretty even-handed. For example, chapters 10 through 13 emphasize the works of God, I think you'd admit. And here chapters 14, 15, 16, and now chapter 17 does seem to emphasize the work of believers. You ought to persevere, right? That's what we're focused on now. And notice here in chapter 17, the emphasis lies on the perseverance of the saints, not the security of believers. Which I'm not trying to make too fine a distinction, but just help you to see the the overall. In other words, we're talking here about the work of Christians to be steadfast in faith. We're not talking about the work of God to keep us securely, even though those, of course, are both at play. They're related topics. They're not exactly the same topic. So to be clear on that is important before we look at these, these um, sections. And I think what helps is to read what they also wrote, which is Westminster Shorter Catechism 36, which we just did. So perseverance is a benefit that comes from God, but it's a work that we perform, right? God does God's work, of course, and God also gives us strength to do our work. We keep trusting in Christ. We keep holding on to him. We keep obeying. We wake up in the morning and you put out effort, right? How do those two relate? God's sovereignty and our responsibility. So section one. I'll read Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 17, section 1. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. So, how certain can we be that we as believers will persevere in the state of grace until the end of our lives and actually be saved when, at the end? We can be completely sure. This is the Reformed answer. This is what the Westminster Divines met together to write down to explain from Scripture. For example, Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, writes Paul, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That God began a work in us and he will finish it in us, which means that we will be found at the end embracing Christ. What, what gives certainty? A, God's unchangeable decree of election. B, the provisions of the eternal covenant. See the merit and intercession of Christ is praying for us. The indwelling Spirit, D. For example, Ephesians 1.14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory, Ephesians 1.14. So the Spirit of God lives in us and, and guarantees it. We'll talk more about that in our next chapter, Assurance, right? Chapter 18. Is perseverance ever threatened? Yes. Have you ever tried to talk to a friend, a family member, a child about, uh, you know, 
they're around the campfire and <laughs> they just heard this strong message come to Christ and they're not sure if they truly believe and maybe I'm a doubter. Um, of course, perseverance is threatened, but because of the action of God, his true saints do not totally, do not finally fall away. So what's left for us to do uh, concerning uh, certainty about ourselves? Uh, to make certain of God's calling. Second Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these things, practice these qualities, you will never fall. How? By continuing to practice these things. What things? Verses 5 through 8 of Second Peter 1. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. The point is that we should make sure of our salvation by keeping our own actions on the right path of the lives of believers. Now, does that sound like you're doing it yourself? Does that sound like works righteousness? Does that sound uncomfortable to you? Right? It's holding intention to things, the work of God and his grace and what's expected of us because we have that grace. Could there be severe backsliding in a believer? Yes, but the securing of the believer is ultimately in God's hands, back, back, back to God. So now let's read section 2. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability, which is unchangeableness, of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy or uh, the uh, effectiveness of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. You'd have to go against the whole covenant. You'd have to go against the cross. You'd have to go against the fact that Jesus rose again. He died for sinners. We trust in him. You'd have to go against everything we learn, everything we sing, everything the Bible stands for. You'd have to say the whole thing is not true in order to conclude that I'm not his. Right? So it's, it's listing all those things out in section 2. Um, Romans 8, 28 is often turned to, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also uh, glorified. Or... Um, basis of our certainty that we belong to God is written again by Paul in 2 Timothy 2, 18 to 19. Uh, some people have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. In other words, the, the end of the world, the final resurrection of believers has already happened and we must be left behind. That's what they were saying. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And then you could also turn to Jesus' high priestly prayer in uh, John 17, 9, that um, he's praying for us, uh, asking the Father to sanctify us in truth, and so on. Um, you could also turn to Jeremiah. We've studied recently Jeremiah 31, uh, verse uh, 3, that I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I've continued my faithfulness to you. So section 3, are there struggles? Yes. Uh, this section admits and shows the struggles that we have in persevering and walking with God. Um, persevering is more like hacking through a dense, foggy forest than it is walking on a beautiful, paved, um, calm trail. So we see this expressed in section 3. Nevertheless, they may, that is believers may, 
through the temptations of Satan in the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Right? You, uh, you get drunk a lot, you're going to have headaches a lot. Right? Temporal judgments just means you, know, you live in the real world, and if you're going to spend all your money, you're going to be broke. You're going to be hungry. Right? So consequences for sin is describing that. But only a brief mention, we all know how that works. It's more focused on the spiritual side of what happens. We start to pull away from God. So is perseverance guaranteed? Yes, it is. Are there struggles? Yes, they are. So on the one hand, perseverance is affirmed in section one, and yet there's still talk here in the third section about partial falling away. Does perseverance happen automatically? Yes and no. <laughs> It, it happens by God, which is outside of our control. If you want to say automatically means I don't um, accomplish it. But it doesn't happen automatically like I just sit back and it happens to me passively. I must stay engaged and play my part. So, um, for example, you could ask it this way. Are believers exposed to temptation? Yes. I mean, the apostle Peter determined not to deny Jesus. I will never deny you. He meant it. Godly man, passionate, well-trained. But then he denied Jesus. I don't know, you ever screw up? (laughs) But then what did he do immediately? He wept bitterly. You ever do that? This is our path. Of course there's struggles. Uh, You can read about that in Matthew uh, 26. All right, so let me just give a couple closing comments on perseverance and I I should move on. So, um, we could go to James 1, 2 through 5, just to encourage you. I, didn't, I hope you weren't confused by my brief overview of the chapter, but this should help. James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Another word for perseverance, right? Verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. So I would say, number one, we keep on rejoicing uh, based on verse two, count it all joy. That's a perpetual expectation that we will keep on rejoicing. Um, Even if persecuted, for example, um, various trials, trials of other people against us, trials of things I've done to myself, um, Keep on rejoicing. And then verses 3 and 4 basically telling us don't quit. Keep on keeping on. Persevere. Be steadfast. Let your faith reach the point of steadfastness or perseverance. Um, A supporting verse to James from Paul. They're both from God, of course. A supporting verse is 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where Paul wrote, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That's what God said to Paul. And then Paul continues, Therefore... I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. So Paul is not relying on his own better and better perfections. He's saying, I'm weak, but I'm going to boast about my weakness because even a very weak person like me 
is saved by a very strong Savior. So he points us back. So as we think about our role, as we think about perseverance, you can never truly separate it or divorce it from our faithful Savior's role. So don't quit now. And then the third point I would say from verse 5, ask God for help. If you're struggling to live a holy life, you're struggling to be assured that you're a believer, ask God about it. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach it will be given. Um, a supporting verse is over in Hebrews 4:16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You're never on your own trying to figure this out. You know, we have a Savior and we have his word, so let's come to him. Right? Prayer, scripture are two weapons. So that's related to chapter 18. We'll turn over to uh, chapter 18. Now this has two pages. If you're using the green booklet, you have the left and the right page there. Um, I wrote more on this one. It's um, drawing out of or flowing out of what we've talked about already so far about perseverance, but it is a distinct topic now. Um, it's a very significant chapter in the history of Reformed theology. The authors thought it was one of the, the greatest questions that ever was. Um, it's so great that we'll be thinking about it the rest of our lives. Um, that our God is so great and gracious that not only does God give us the grace of salvation, the external fact that we are in fact saved, but he also in addition gives us the grace of certainty about our own salvation. So you see that in my leading sentence, the bold print sense across the top. I've tried to summarize the whole chapter in one sentence. So remember the context. Mid-1640s, this is being written. Mid-1640s. How far is that away from Luther's 95 thesis? 113 years. I looked it up. A century from the Counter-Reformation. Theological positions in Rome are being solidified. Theological positions in the Protestant church are being solidified. Secularization of society is beginning. So they're, they're talking to people in, in that context. And, and in that context, they're raising this important question. Can you be sure? Uh, so question, uh, section one. Although hypocrites and other re- unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. So we already see the dangers of false presumption, which is not the same as assurance. Presumption is thinking something's true, but it's not. Assurance is knowing something is true, and it is. So the dangers of false assurance is presumption. Is there such a thing as falsely based assurance? Yes. It's a person who's not a believer but thinks they are. It's that simple. That, that's a danger. Wouldn't you admit? So is that me? Wouldn't you admit that that's a pretty significant, high-level priority question for us to settle for ourselves? So it's, it's a, huge, uh, a huge, huge question. Um, so is there a possibility of certain assurance? The answer, of course, is, is yes. The Bible tells us we can have it. Romans eight sixteen. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. 
1 John 2, 3, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. So not only is it possible to have assurance, it's commanded. You must go in this direction. For example, um, the Bible commands us to be assured in Hebrews 6.11. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. Another passage where the Bible commands us to be assured, 2 Peter 1.10. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. If you do these things, you'll never fall and you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Savior died for us he doesn't want us to wander around scared and uncertain our whole lives until he comes. He's given us not only salvation, but the gift of certainty about it. Here's some examples in the Bible of people who are sure. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day, which is what? His soul. 2 Timothy 4, again, he says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Um, not just Paul, but also John expressed certainty about his soul. First John 2, 3, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands, and so on. So how can we tell? Look for these things. Pride. Is there pride? Because true assurance makes us humble. 1 Corinthians 15.10 By the grace of God I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. But false assurance makes us prideful. Galatians 6.14 May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So watch for pride. That's an indicator. The second thing is diligence. Ha-ha! Like we've been studying in the Disciplines of a Godly Man book, that will be evident in true believer. True assurance makes us work hard. Is that ironic? Because it's all by grace. It's not a works-based religion at all. And yet the people who are grace-based are the hardest working people. The more you understand grace, the more you work for the Lord. Hebrews 6.11, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. Uh, 2 Peter 1.10, I already read. I think I read it twice. But false assurance, on the other side, leads to sloth. Uh, Psalm uh, 51, verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. And, he, and, and uh, jump down to verse 19 of Psalm 51. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. There's a lot of activity there. So someone who trusts in Christ, has an active walk with God, will be doing a lot of activity. Um, in the Old Testament, it was bringing these sacrifices, teaching others, and so on. In the New Testament, it's similar. It's worshiping God because of the sacrifice of Christ, and it's teaching others. And then there's self-examination. Uh, true assurance makes us want to be searched and be corrected by God. Just don't tell me if there's problems or not. I just don't want to know. That's, that's not a good indicator. A person who walks with God wants to be completely naked before God, open before him and say, search me, right? Psalm 139, 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If I have a problem, I want to fix it. 
That's the notion of a true believer. False assurance makes us avoid accurate investigation and remain satisfied with appearances. As long as my veneer is fine, let's just leave this all alone. That's falsehood, right? Um, Galatians 6, 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So while you're deceiving others, you deceive yourself, or the other way around, while you're deceiving yourself, you deceive others. And another indicator is longing for closeness with God. True assurance makes us long for him, like Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? You're not going to find that in the person who doesn't truly have faith. You're going to find that in the person who, who does have true faith. Or as John writes, 1 John 3, uh, verse 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. So, um, I think you get the idea of how the chapter holds together. Um, yeah, that. even though we only covered one section, I think you have on your handout what would be um, necessary for, for you to go deeper. In the, in the few minutes we have left, let me at least introduce chapter 19 on the law. And uh, I'll see, see how far we get. I'm not that concerned, but I am trying to catch up with, uh, with where our schedule was. So chapter 19, the law of God. All right, so that, it begins a new area of development here. We've seen chapters 10 through 17 as kind of a unit describing how God works and how we work, divine responsibility, human responsibility. Now we're, we're going into a new um, area. Um, now that covenantal salvation has been spelled out and we've spent the last chapters um, working on it, how is covenantal salvation now related to other topics? So the first other topic is the law. It starts a series of expositions now about the nature of Christian duty individually and the nature of Christian duty corporately, all of us together. For example, in this chapter, there's an answer to the question, how is our salvation related to God's law? The law of God is central, of course, to the message of the Bible. If we were to list the two most important things in the Bible, um, the first would be uh, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the second would be law of God. So how do those two relate? How does Jesus relate to the law of God? In, in Matthew 5.17, we read Jesus Uh, we learn that Jesus came not to destroy, but to fulfill the law of God. So how could one make a more radical error than to think of the law of God as passable, changing, or fleeting? Like, you know how, have you ever talked to a weak Christian who their impression of it is that God had the law in the Old Testament when he was mean and kind of grumpy. And then he sent Jesus, and Jesus sort of twisted the Father's arm and cheered him up a bit and made it all all right. 
And there's a lot more gracious time now in the New Testament. So we don't want to go back to the grumpy God of the Old Testament. We have now the, the cheerful, gracious God of the New Testament. That's expression of this core misunderstanding. I don't know how you could get a more core wrong understanding of the Bible. God expects his law to be upheld. We've been studying that as a church through Jeremiah, right? The constant talk about the need for repetition, destruction is coming, judgment. It comes out of the holiness of God. It comes out of the law of God. So what's the law of God? A statement about what God requires of human beings. It's just that simple. A statement about what God requires of human beings. So, um, yeah, you have that printed there for you on the handout. So, God is the unchangeable God. How could the law of God change? It cannot change. It does not change. Psalm 119, 160, All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. There you go. The laws of God are described as eternal. Psalm 119, 152, Long ago I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. So God is everlasting and holy. His law lasts forever. In order for us to deal with God, we have to deal with his law. Of course, you know, we cover justification and we understand the cross. You know where this is going. The holy life of Christ fulfilled the law of God and covered our breaking of the law of God. So first, God wrote his law on the conscience of man. Romans 2, uh, 14. When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Okay, so here's what you have in our culture. On their hearts, right? The same people who argue for the right to abortion, which is to kill a child, breaking the sixth commandment, will say, this is terrible that we have violence and shooting. We really need to end it and make our schools safe. It's the same commandment. There's just absolute confusion there. So people have the law of God on their hearts. They're confused about certain aspects of it, but the law is on their conscience. How do they get so passionate about people's lives being ended over here when they're not passionate about people's lives being ended over here? So it's the law of God written on people's hearts. Everybody has an idea of what morality is, what's right and wrong. Where do they get that from? They're created in the image of God. They have the law of God written on them. So let's look at section one. God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to a personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him with power and ability to keep it. Adam bound to keep the law? Yes. In what way was he to keep the law? Personally, he couldn't farm this out, hire a consultant, could you please keep the law for me because I'm going to break it over here. He himself had to do it personally, entirely. You can't say, well, you know, I, I got 80%, what do you want? Isn't that like a B plus, a B minus? I'm all right. Entirely, right? You can't take parts of it out. Exactly, let's not become little lawyers and say, well, you know, if you, if you look at it this way, no, exact obedience and perpetual. Well, you know, I, I did this for 20 years. Can I get a, catch a break here? How long do you want this to go? All this obedience and holiness. It's personal, entire, exact, and perpetual. So is it appropriate for man to have a commandment from God? Yes, because he's the creator. That's also largely missing in our culture. God has every right to say to us what we should and should not do with our bodies, what we should and should not do with our culture, with others, our relationships, our walk with him, 
It's part of what it means to be a creature of God, to have a commandment from God. The Creator's commands are altogether wisdom itself. So, we covered section one and introduced um, the law. So, it's, it's a helpful section. If you have time to look over that, we'll pick up here next time, Lord willing, how the law, if you look at section three, ceremonial law abrogated, section four, judicial law expired, section five, moral law binding. So that's how you deal with the Old Testament commands to sacrifice bulls and goats. That's how you deal with the fact that there was an Israel and there's no longer a nation of Israel, but the people of God are the Israel of God. That judicial law of what the kings were supposed to do is expired, whereas the moral law is continuously binding. It's still wrong to commit adultery. It's still wrong to commit murder and so on. So that's explanations of the law. And then chapter 6 is probably one of the most helpful aspects of um, the Westminster Confession of the Reformed Faith is the explication of how do we relate to the law then? What is the use of the law? And it, it, it spells out, and this, especially this phrase, the, a law is a rule of life. We'll try to explain and un, unpack that uh, next time under section 6. And lastly, if we missed it, go back all around in section 7 of how does the law relate to the gospel explicitly and exactly. You know, since, since we're saved by grace... Uh, how does the law relate to that? Leave you hanging. <laughs> All right. 